inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. Hello, everybody. Julie Goodnight here, and thanks for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe now so you won't miss a single episode. Thank you to all my listeners for helping spread the word about practical, everyday horsemanship and how to excel. I appreciate all the ratings and reviews you've left me, and we love the comments and suggestions, so please keep them coming. Since the last time we recorded, there's not much new to report around here. We're still in the deepest days of winter, and it's been cold and snowy, temperatures below zero. That's Fahrenheit, by the way. We've had quite a few days where it's absolutely too cold to work the horses. It's just a matter of slogging through the snow and breaking the ice and keeping the horses warm and moving the hay around and Keeping up with winter chores is is never an easy matter if you live in a climate with a hard winter as we do here in South Central Colorado. So this is the time of year we kind of go into a holding pattern with our horses. We try to maintain their training and conditioning. I do have an indoor arena, thankfully. It has passive solar heating, so if the sun's out And the day is, uh, we don't work the horses when the temperatures are single digits or lower. But as long as we're in the teens and higher and the sun's out, it's pretty toasty in our indoor arena. But riding indoors gets boring and monotonous, actually for the horses and the riders. And, you know, I feel the energy level go down in the horses. I feel like it becomes drudgery for them. So we try to not do too much in the indoor, not too much monotony, not too much repetitiveness. We like to, you know, mix things up by uh, doing unique little things every day, like maybe drag a log around or trot some over some poles or cavalettis or work on the cutting machine or just anything to break up the monotony of riding indoors. Once we start riding the horses outdoors in the spring, they just feel like different horses. They're so enthusiastic and energized. So right now we're in this indoor riding (laughs) monotony and looking forward to spring. It's the time of year we start laying out our training goals for the upcoming riding season, making plans for what clinics we want to attend. Of course, competitions and the like. We're going to plan a few camping trips for this year, hopefully, and get some exciting new trail riding in. There's a lot of planning going on. There's a lot of maintenance going on in terms of the training level of the horses and a lot of looking forward to spring. We've been having a lot of fun with our temporary resident, Remington. He's a four-month-old Clydesdale colt who was evacuated from the wildfires that raged through the northern Colorado in the fall of 2020. And he and his mother came down here to winter with us since their facility was damaged in the fires. And so we've had a lot of fun having this cult around. You can almost watch him grow if he sits still long enough. Technically, he's a yearling now because 
even though he's not yet old enough to be weaned, he was born very, very late in the year for a horse colt. He was an accidental breeding, and he was born October 1st. The end of January, he's just four months old now, and we're looking, um, you know, we're looking forward to weaning him in the next month or two. In the meanwhile, he's learning his ground manners, how to walk politely beside someone that's leading them without jumping on them or biting them or leaping into the air. And he's learning how to negotiate being with the older horses out in the herd. <laughs> We've had a lot of fun watching that and sharing some of those videos with you on Facebook. So I hope you've enjoyed watching that. It's really been fun to watch him grow up. It's fun to watch him learn how to negotiate his world. And it's fun to shape and mold his behavior in a positive direction. He's going to grow up to be a giant horse, so it's great that he's getting some good foundational manners as a baby. We don't handle him a lot, just for a few minutes every day when he goes out to his turnout and for a few minutes every day when he comes in. And just with that little bit of handling, he's learning his manners just fine. I'm looking forward to resuming my travels later this month. I have a trip planned to the White Stallion Ranch in Tucson, Arizona for a private clinic I'm doing there. We taped the TV show at that guest ranch for about seven years in a row, so many of you are familiar with it. If you watched my TV show, Horse Master with Julie Goodnight, I'm excited to go back there this month and soak in some warm weather. I'm excited to see the beautiful desert landscape, the saguaro cactus, and the incredible cactus gardens at the White Stallion Ranch. Looking forward to doing some riding there. It is just a great place to be in the winter, so I'm looking forward to that. All of the expos I was booked at as a presenter for the spring of 2021 have been postponed again to the spring of 2022. We're confident that 2022 is going to be a great year to return to the larger events. In the meantime, I'm going to be hitting the road, traveling all over the country, doing horsemanship clinics on a smaller scale. I'll be doing private clinics and public clinics. I have four programs at Sea Lazy U this year. In May, we have the Women's Riding and Wholeness Retreat, co-taught with Barbara Schulte, in September, I have the popular ranch riding adventure. And then two brand new programs in October. We have the Women's Leadership Clinic that I co-teach again with Barbara Schulte. That program's aimed at business executives. And then we have the Horsemanship Immersion Program. That one's aimed at horse crazy people. And uh, that's a five-day horsemanship intensive program. So you can visit juliegoodnight.com for more information on these clinics. I've got a few other horsemanship clinics in the works. Some of these will have openings. Some of them will stay on a private basis. If you're interested in hosting a clinic with me, please let us know. I'll come to your facility and conduct a clinic for one or more people. Could be just for you and your friends, or it could be open to the public. For more information on organizing a horsemanship clinic, please go to juliegoodnight.com slash private clinic or email info at juliegoodnight.com.
And while you're there, please check out my online training programs and video subscriptions at signin.juliegoodnight.com. Plus, we've got innovative grooming tools, tack, bits, equipment, and educational resources at shop.juliegoodnight.com. Today's podcast topic is trotting hacks, tips for improving your equitation at the trot. This will be helpful for both English and Western riders, although the suggestion for this topic came from one of our regular listeners and one of my online coaching students and was specifically in relationship to English equitation competition. Today, I want to talk to you all about the trot, about ways to improve your posting technique, whether you're just learning this handy skill for the first time or you're an old pro, there's a lot more to posting the trot than simply going up and down. I'll also cover trotting diagonals, what the heck they are and why we do it, and how to feel what diagonal you're on. Plus, I've got some brand new questions to answer straight from our listeners in my What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this podcast. The trot is one of the most prolific gates that we use when we ride horses, whether you're training a green horse or whether you're a green rider learning to ride. We spend a lot of time learning to master the trot before we move on to the canter. Hence the old, old saying in horsemanship that says the best way to improve the canter is to improve the trot. And that saying refers to the fact that there is just so much to master when it comes to riding the trot. There's so many different ways to ride the trot. We can, you know, ride the slow trot, the working trot, the extended trot. We can ride the trot sitting, posting, standing. We can do circles, turns, transitions from the trot. And all of that while the rider is learning to improve their position, improve their balance, improve their efficiency in moving fluidly with the horse. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. We spend a lot of time at the trot because whether you're riding 100 miles because it's the most ground-covering pace or whether you're learning to ride or train a new skill to the horse. We generally are going to look at mastering at the trot. The walk is not very challenging because there's no suspension in the gait. So the trot is one of the three natural gates of the horse. The natural gates of the horse are walk, trot, gallop. And the trot is a two-beat diagonal gait with suspension. Let's take a moment to think about what that means. Two beats simply means that the feet hit the ground in pairs, two at a time. They, in fact, hit the ground in diagonal pairs. So the left hind hits the ground the same time as the right four and vice versa. And in between those two strides is a moment of suspension. So it's quite similar to the human jog, except it's on four feet instead of two. The feet are moving in diagonal pairs, and that's important to remember we're going to come back to it. Suspension means that all four feet of the horse come off the ground at the same time. So it's a vertical lift in the horse. And suspension is what makes the trot difficult to ride. So you're lifting up vertically. The horse's back is lifting up vertically while all four feet come off the ground. And so it can be very challenging to ride depending on how smooth or bouncy, springy the horse's trot is. As I mentioned before, there are indeed three ways to ride the trot, 
you can ride the trot sitting, posting, or standing. Generally speaking, you're only going to ride the trot sitting when you're moving slowly at the trot. We use the posting trot and the standing trot for faster speeds to get up off the horse's back. That makes it more comfortable for both the horse and the rider. The posting trot simply means that you're rising up and down in rhythm with the two-beat trot. It's very important to use the lift in the horse's back to initiate the movement. That helps make the posting motion much more efficient and smoother in the rider. And most importantly, it helps the rider stay in a very clear synchronization with the rhythm of the horse. If I were riding the slow collected trot and doing a lot of maneuvering with my horse, whether that was collection or bending or schooling figures, I would most likely be riding in the sitting position so that I'm able to use my seat aids and my leg aids more effectively. As soon as we move up into the working trot, the extended trot, the long trot, whatever you want to call it, that's when we want to start posting or standing, getting up off the horse's back. I have a few hacks for you in terms of how to ride the trot in all those different ways. By the way, one of the reasons why the trot is one of the most learning gates for both horse and rider is because riding it is challenging and mastering all three of these ways to ride the trot is a lot of work. And I can't even tell you which one's the hardest. I think for every rider, one of the three is more challenging than the other, but none of them are easy. So let's start with the sitting trot. Arguably one of the most difficult skills to learn in riding, depending on the horse that you're riding. If you have a super, super smooth gated horse with a, you know, slow, easy trot, that's not very hard to sit. But if your horse is big or has a lot of suspension in his gates or he's bouncy, springy, what we might call rough gated, then that can be really challenging to sit. And there are a lot of things, uh, transitions and maneuvers that we do that require sitting the trot. It can be very challenging. A few things that I can tell you based on the thousands of riders that I've taught in my career. First of all, don't push on the stirrups. A lot of riders that are having trouble sitting the trot have their heels up and they're pushing on the ball of their foot on the stirrup. That locks your ankles, knees, and hips. It causes you to close your pelvis and tilt forward. And all of that makes it nearly impossible to sit the trot. So I really want to encourage riders to sit back, lift their weight off the ball of the foot, and sink down through their heels. A good way to conquer that one little thing about pushing on the stirrups is to ride the sitting trot without your feet in the stirrups. Keep your legs in the correct riding position just exactly as if they were in the stirrup, toes up and heels down, a nice long leg with contact on your inner thigh, but no feet in the stirrups. And without the stirrups there, it's impossible to push on them. And most riders that are having trouble sitting the trot, as soon as you tuck them into taking their feet out of the stirrups, they start sitting the trot just fine. So that's the number one thing I look at. Secondly, and related to that, is 
riders often in anticipation of more speed or in anticipation of the lift in the horse's back at the trot is that they tend to perch forward a little bit, bringing their shoulders in front of their hips, causing weight to come on the crotch. When you feel weight come forward like that, you're closing your pelvis. And in order to sit the trot correctly, your pelvis has to be as open as it can be. So it has the full range of motion in order to absorb the lift in the horse's back. First, start by scooting to the middle of your saddle, then kind of lean back just a little bit so that you think about getting your nose behind your belt buckle or getting your shoulders slightly behind your hips. Tuck your tailbone in, suck your belly button in towards your spine. That's opening your pelvis. You can try that sitting in the chair right now or if you're driving in a car. Just think about sucking your belly button in towards your spine and tucking your tailbone underneath you in such a way that you roll back on your seat bones. And that's a motion we call opening the pelvis. And that is a big key to sitting the trot well. There is both a vertical lift in the horse's back and a lateral or side-to-side movement in the horse's back as well. For instance, as he pushes off with his right hind foot, his right hip lifts, the right side of his back muscles contract. And then when he swings that right foot forward, the hip drops down, those muscles relax. At the same time, the horse is pushing off with the left foot, the left back muscles are contracting. So you get this right, left, right, left, right, left feeling at the sitting trot, as well as the lifting up, down, up, down as the horse's back lifts into suspension. So there's there's two different things you're looking for to feel there. You have to be able to sit the trot really well before you begin to feel the lateral movement of the trot, the right to left feeling in your seat bones. That's a really critical feeling. It's going to come in majorly into play as we start talking about collection at the trot, as we start talking about feeling your diagonals and even uh, bending and lateral movements as well. So that's the feeling you're searching for, that both a vertical lift and dropping to your hips and a lateral side-to-side movement in your hips. One thing that often helps riders that are learning to master the sitting trot First of all, make sure you're sitting very vertical, very tall, and make sure that you are just absolutely plumb vertical and not leaning forward or not pushing your legs out in front of you and your seat behind you. Ask somebody to look at you from the side and just tell them you're looking for a plumb line between your ear, shoulder, hip, and heel. So starting from good position, as you ask the horse to come into a trot, Try to keep the trot relatively slow and collected if you can. That makes it a lot easier to sit. Here is my trick for helping you learn to sit the trot better. So you're sitting nice and tall in your vertical position at a slow sitting trot. I want you to imagine that you're on a stationary bicycle and you're pedaling the bicycle backwards. You can probably try that right now sitting in your seat and kind of feel what I mean. But when you try it on the horse at the trot, you may feel a real synchronization with the movement of the horse as your hips start moving just like his are moving. 
And it can be really helpful for uh, letting someone find the feel of the sitting trot. As a riding instructor, it's hard to know what skills to teach a beginner rider first. Just surviving the trot is an important one. So sometimes people might actually teach the standing trot first, just, you know, kind of hold on and put put your weight in your stirrups. Some people may teach the sitting trot first. Others might go straight to the posting trot. As I said, none of them are easy to learn. And so there's no right or wrong there that I know of. You can work on any of these methods for riding the trot first. As an instructor, we might vary it up a little bit depending on the horse the student is riding. The posting trot is the next way to ride the trot that I want to talk about. And one thing I will say about posting trot is I've noticed for the last, I would say at least last five years, that I have more and more advanced riders asking me to help them with the posting trot. Indeed, the suggestion for this podcast topic came from a very advanced rider who's showing both English and Western equitation. People can learn to basically move in rhythm and go up and down at the trot and feel like they're posting but there's actually a lot of technique involved in doing it correctly so that you're riding efficiently and in balance and synchronization with the horse and so that both of you are able to last a long distance at the trot. Actually, first of all, let's just talk about what the posting trot is. Posting trot is a American term. In most other countries, it's referred to as the rising trot. By the way, a little bit of horse trivia here for your next riding club meeting. The reason why we call it the posting trot is it came from the Pony Express. And the trot is the most ground-covering pace of the horse. And they would ride those Pony Express horses hard, hard, hard from the start to the destination. They just never let up on those horses. They rode really hard at an extended trot, and the riders were doing the rising trot. And it became known as the posting trot because the Pony Express riders did it. The rising trot is a little bit more accurate description because the rider comes up out of the saddle and sits all the way back down with each stride of the trot. So the trot has two beats to it, two steps to it, if you will, one, two, one, two, one, two, and the rider's going up, down, up, down, up, down. We say up, down, up, down, but it's really actually a forward and then sit back down, forward and then sit back down. It is a motion that's almost identical to standing up and getting out of a dinner chair. So if I'm just seated in a regular basic old chair pulled up to the table and I'm backed away from the table and I'm going to stand up and get up out of that chair, I've got my feet, two feet underneath me, and I just kind of stand up, bring my hips forward, and then sit back down in the chair. That's basically what the rising trot is. The trick to doing it correctly is to rise from your thighs and not from pushing on the stirrup. So for many riders, their tendency is to push down on the stirrup in order to get up, but the motion is actually coming from the knee up and it's basically an opening of your pelvis, a rising and opening of your pelvis. And the motion is coming entirely from your thighs. 
And so, in fact, if you will think of your leg actually lengthening when you rise for the posting trot, so I want my weight to sink into my heel and my leg to actually lengthen as I rise, similar to the way it would if you were standing up to get out of a chair. Make sure that you are rising from your thighs and not from the stirrups. It's really easy to see that in a rider if you're standing in the middle of the arena, because when you push off the stirrup, your heel comes up every time you rise in the post. When you post correctly off your thighs, you will feel your heels lengthen and stretch down every time you rise. When you're riding the posting trot, because you're doing all this motion with your thighs, your thighs are slightly turned in. Again, your heel is stretching long. Another huge mistake people often make, sometimes riders that are quite advanced and have been posting the trot for a long time, is that they do too much work themselves and they don't allow the horse to lift them in the rising trot. The horse's back is lifting up in a vertical motion with every stride of the trot. If you allow that horse to lift you up into the rising trot with good timing, and then you sit back down immediately and fully in order to receive the next lift in the horse's back, the efficiency is much better between the horse and the rider. The synchronization is much better and it becomes smoother. One image that I think often helps riders to think about using the motion of the horse more efficiently is to imagine you're on a trampoline, you're standing on two feet on a trampoline, and you're going to just fall back, bounce your bottom on the trampoline, and come back up to two feet. If you've ever been on a trampoline before, undoubtedly you've done that. You're standing on two feet, you fall back to your bottom, and then bounce right back up to two feet. As you come down to your bottom, you tuck your tailbone under you, you curl your hips so that as you bounce back up to your feet, you lift easily. And that to me is totally what the motion of the efficient posting trot is. One mistake I see riders make because they're not doing this correctly is that they don't come back fully into the saddle with each beat of the trot. And so they start posting up and up and forward and forward and forward and focusing more on the up motion. They forget to sit back down. And it is only in the sitting back down and rounding your lower back and coiling those hips that it allows you to spring back up again using as little as your own energy as possible and as much of the lift from the horse's back as possible. This also puts you in a much cleaner rhythm with the horse. So the idea is then to do as little work as possible. Remember, you might have 15 or 20 miles to ride at that posting trot. So we want to use our energy as efficiently as possible and utilize the lift in the horse's back. But it also keeps you in a better motion so that when you come down, you're not slamming down on the horse's back or getting those little bump, bump, bump extra bumps in there, which are simply because you're out of rhythm with the horse. Remember, at the posting trot, the horse sets the rhythm. If you're feeling a little bit bouncy, it's because you're just not quite in rhythm with the horse. It will come. Give it time. Nobody gets to learn the posting trot the very first time they try it. You can easily learn it in one session. Most of my riders do. But 
you don't start right out doing it. You've got to find the rhythm. You've got to find the motion. It's important that you let the horse set the motion. Think about that bouncing the bottom on the trampoline. Think about sitting the trot until you feel the lift, feel the lift, feel the up, down, up, down, up, and then rise up off your thighs. And of course, the third way to ride the trot is the standing trot. It's not hard if you're able to ride in good position and if you're in balance with the horse. So from the sitting trot, all you need to do to ride the standing trot is just shift a small amount of weight onto your feet as you lift a little bit of weight off your seat bone. You'll still have contact with the saddle in your inner thighs and in your seat area, but there won't be weight on it. In the standing trot, it's not our goal to get high out of the saddle. It's just to take the weight off of your seat and let it transfer down to the stirrups. The standing trot is useful for a lot of things. If we're long trotting and just want to get up off the horse's back, maybe the rider wants to rest a little bit. You have to have good balance to ride the standing trot without holding on. You shouldn't practice it holding on unless you absolutely have to to build confidence. Holding on will interfere with your ability to get balanced in your position and your leg position. Make sure when you ride the standing trot that you still have an open pelvis. You're still rounding that lower back, tucking the tailbone under, sucking the belly button in, and lengthening all the way down through your heels. As you come into that standing position, your lower leg will move slightly back in order to counterbalance the slight forward tilt of your upper body. Think about stretching back through your heels as you move into that standing position. Again, the standing trot is a great exercise for improving your balance, for improving your leg position. It's very useful in long trotting or riding a rough trot, or maybe when you're out on the trail. So those are the three different ways to ride the trot. There's a lot involved in mastering each one of those. I would spend some time every day that you ride practicing those three different ways to ride the trot, posting, standing, and sitting. Whichever one you're weakest at, I would work on more because they're all important to master as you move up the ranks in your riding. The next thing I want to talk to you about in terms of mastering the trot is about trotting diagonals. Remember I said before that the trot is a two-beat diagonal gait, and that simply means that the legs hit the ground in diagonal pairs. Left hind, right fore, hit the ground at the same time. Right hind, left fore, hit the ground at the same time. So if you think just about the hind feet of the horse where all motion originates, that's the power, the engine of the horse is the hind feet. He's pushing off right, left, right, left, right, left with his hind feet. It's a pretty steady, even rhythm. However, as soon as you add the rider and now the rider begins posting, that even right, left stride in the horse's hind end is no longer even because... In the posting trot, the rider is sitting on one beat and standing on the other. Just imagine, if you will, that you were riding the posting trot for 10 miles in a perfectly straight line. Let's say I'm going down a road. If I stayed posting on the same set of diagonal pairs for 10 miles 
In other words, every time I was sitting, he was pushing off with his right hind. And every time I was rising, he was pushing off with his left hind. What would happen at the end of that 10 miles is that his right hind would have done a lot more work lifting my 125, 150 or whatever pounds up than the left foot did when I was rising with the motion of the trot. The foot that you're sitting on is doing more work than the one you're rising on. And so if I were riding a 10-mile straight line at the posting trot, it would be really important to post on the right diagonal for a mile and then switch to the left diagonal for a mile and then switch to the right diagonal and so on so that I was working my horse equally on both sides. Most of us are used to thinking about posting diagonals in the arena. Most of you are used to thinking about it probably only in terms of competition and probably only in terms of English competition. But let me just dispel a few myths for you there. Posting on the correct diagonal has to do with the balance of the horse. And so if we say it's not necessary for Western riders, then we're saying balance isn't necessary for a Western horse. And of course, we know that's not right. Posting the trot has to do with the efficiency of the horse's movement in both straight lines, as I just explained, and also in turns. It's not really an English Western thing. It's just that we're most used to thinking of it in terms of an English thing. I think to be a really highly, highly skilled rider, if you're working on things like collection and bending, it doesn't matter whether you ride English or Western, you should understand diagonals because it has to do with the horse's ability to perform. In the arena, when we think about posting diagonals, it no longer has to do with the conditioning and evening out the right-left work of the horse's hind legs. It now has to do with bending. As soon as we bring a horse on to a bending turn, meaning that from his pole right between his ears all the way to his tail, the line of his spine is arced in the exact line of the turn or circle that we're riding. As soon as we arc a turn, the hind legs of the horse also start working unevenly. You can see this for yourself by doing this simple little exercise. Next time you're walking around in a big room or outside, I want you to start walking in a smaller and smaller and smaller circle until your inside foot is hardly moving. The circle that your inside foot is making is maybe only a foot wide. And the first thing you're going to notice is that your feet are working unevenly. So you're taking a small pivoting step with the inside foot and a long sweeping step with your outside foot as you walk around this tiny circle. The next thing you'll notice is that you're more weight bearing on your inside leg than you are the outside. As you take the small little pivot type step with the inside foot and the long sweeping step with your outside leg, you'll notice that you have more weight on your inside leg than your outside. So both of these things are true for your horse when you are trotting on an arcing turn or circle. So he is more weight bearing on his inside hind foot and he's taking a longer, more sweeping stride with his outside hind foot. So once again, 
the hind legs in turns, in arcing turns and circles and bending. The inside leg is more weight-bearing and the outside leg is taking a bigger step. So therefore, when you're riding the posting trot in an arena, you need to be posting on the correct diagonal pair of legs. Riding in the arena means that you're always turning in one direction or the other because there's a turn at the end every time you get there. If you're tracking right, you're making a right-hand turn, you know, all the way around the arena. And if you're tracking left, you're making a left-hand turn all the way around the arena. And so when we're working horses at the posting trot in an arena situation, we should always be aware of the diagonal pair that we're rising and sitting on. That's referred to as posting on the correct diagonal. The old saying in horsemanship, as we teach people to learn which diagonal pair to rise on, it goes like this. It says, rise and fall with the leg on the wall because that's a little rhyme that's easy for riders to remember, rise and fall with the leg on the wall. And the wall refers to the indoor riding school that tends to have a solid wall all the way around. The leg on the wall refers to the outside foreleg of the horse. But as we just established, the reason why we are posting on the correct diagonal has to do with the unevenness of the workload on the hind legs of the horse, not the forelegs. But when you say rise and fall with the leg on the wall, it allows the rider to use the front leg of the horse as a guide. But remember, because we are talking about diagonal pairs, it's actually the inside hind leg of the horse that's moving forward as you rise. What you're actually trying to do is get off of the inside leg of the horse as he's pushing off because he's already more weight-bearing on the inside hind leg. By you rising on that same leg, it helps the horse with that uneven workload. So we rise and fall with the leg on the wall. That saying refers to the outside front leg of the horse. So if I was going around the arena to the left, it would be the right front leg that I would be rising with. As that leg comes forward, I go forward. But the reason why is actually the inside hind leg that you're trying to rise with. I prefer to teach people to feel their diagonals and never to look down at the shoulder of the horse. Unfortunately, if you use the saying rise and fall with the leg on the wall, you probably also learn to look down at the shoulders of the horse to determine when you should be rising. And this is, is not ideal in many ways. One is looking down at the shoulders of the horse is never a good idea. Secondly, if you're showing and this is your big concern about being on the correct posting diagonal, it's just as important as being on the correct lead at the canter. If you're looking down to find your diagonals, by the way, there's not a horse show judge in the world that doesn't see you do that. It's very easy to detect in a rider and the judges are looking for that. They're looking for, are you on the correct diagonal? And number two, do you have to look down to find the correct diagonal? Did you start on the wrong diagonal and then have to look down and notice you made a mistake and fix it? Or did you begin posting on the correct diagonal without looking down? These are things that are really easy for a judge to see. So if you really want to excel in equitation riding, you want to be able to feel the diagonal. So the other reason why it's really important to learn to feel it instead of look for it is because it's easy. It's easy to feel your diagonals. But once you're trained to look for them, 
it becomes really hard. Same thing is true of canter leads, by the way. Looking down at the horse's shoulders to see what lead you're on or to see what, what diagonal you're on simply rules out any possibility of feeling that diagonal or that lead. Both of them are very easy to feel. If you remember when we talked about the sitting trot, we talked about feeling the lateral right-left motion of the horse. If you can ride the sitting trot well enough to feel the lateral right-left motion in your seat bones, you can feel your posting diagonals. It's quite simple. When the horse pushes off with his right hind leg, you feel your right hip lift. When he pushes off with his left hind leg, you feel your left hip lift at the sitting trot. By the way, correct equitation requires that you proceed at the posting trot in this manner. First, you cue the horse to trot while you're sitting. You sit the trot for as many beats as you need to take in order for you to feel the correct diagonal and to feel the rhythm and the lift of the horse. And then you begin posting on the correct diagonal. Unfortunately, many riders have learned to just start posting first and then look down and check and see if they're on the correct diagonal. This is a really difficult habit to break, and I suggest you start by breaking that habit of posting first and asking questions later. So do not start the posting trot until you know which diagonal to rise on. If you already have the habit of doing it the other way, let me just warn you, this is going to be a very hard habit to break. If I had the opportunity to teach you when you were learning this for the first time, it would be simple to feel it. So the longer you've been posting first and asking questions later, the harder the habit is to break. But I want you to first get in the habit of cueing the horse to trot, remain sitting for a few strides until you feel the right, left, right, left movement. And all you've got to do to feel your diagonals and begin posting on the correct diagonal is feel when your outside hip lifts and then rise on the outside hip. And so if I'm tracking left, I cue the horse to trot. I sit the trot one, two, three, four strides until I can feel the right, left, right, left in my hip bones, in my seat. And then I say to myself, when my outside hip lifts, so I'm tracking left, so that would be my right hip. So when my right hip lifts, I say to myself, up, up, and then I rise, rise. Begin the trot sitting. Take a moment to feel the stride of the horse. Feel the right left movement in your hips and rise when your outside hip lifts and you'll be on the correct diagonal. If you're in the habit of looking down to find your diagonal, it's going to take a lot of self-discipline to cure that problem. And here's what you're going to do. First, remember I told you, do not begin posting until you feel the correct diagonal. So I want you to work from the sitting trot and I want you to close your eyes if it helps. Think about how it feels. Feel your outside hip lift. Say to yourself, up up and then begin rising when you say up and then and only then can you look down and check and see if you're correct if you have good self-discipline and you practice this a lot you should be able to feel your posting diagonals in no time at all this is a skill that will really separate you 
from other riders in equitation, particularly in English equitation. The wrong diagonal in Western riding is not going to be frowned on as much, although most judges are going to notice it. However, I will tell you this. When you reach a level of riding where you're really super synchronized with your horse and working on high-level maneuvers, you will feel the change in the horse's balance when you're on the wrong diagonal. You will feel, for instance, as you do serpentines and figure eights, you always want to change diagonals right before you ask the horse for the new arc, and you will feel a change in his balance as you do. And then also the horse comes to understand that when you change your diagonal, you are also going to be changing his arc. Things tend to kind of flow together better that way. Finally, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about trot transitions. There are so many ways to ride the trot. You can ride the slow collected trot, the working trot. Sometimes we call that the long trot. That's the most ground covering gait of the horse, by the way. And then we have the fully extended trot, which is kind of fun to ride as well. You want to ride the trot in all those different ways. You want your horse to hold the cadence of that particular gait that you're riding till you ask him to do something different, whether that be a slow collected trot or an extended trot or something in between. So I like to ride the trot in all different ways every time I ride my horse. I always start with a 10-minute long trot. And after I've trotted for about, oh, I don't know, five or seven minutes at a working trot, I then start mixing it up a little bit. I go to collected trot, then to extended trot, then to working trot, then to extended trot, then to collected trot. It's good training and it's fun. Uh, one of my favorite exercises, in fact, is just that, is to ride around the arena and do the transition to the slow collected sitting trot as I come into the turn of the short side. I like to ride the short side of the arena at the slow collected trot. And then as I come out of the turn onto the long side, I like to move the horse up to the posting and extended trot. And then before I get to the end of the arena, I'm going to transition back down to the slow sitting trot, ask my horse to come onto an arcing bend as we come around the short side of the arena, and then do the same thing again. It's a great exercise to practice your trot transitions. I like to come across the diagonal of the arena when I'm practicing the extended trot. So I'll often go from either a working trot or a sitting trot, come across the diagonal of the arena and ask for extension. The diagonal line of your arena, you ride the short side. And then as you come out of the corner of the short side, you ride diagonally across the arena to just before the corner of the other short side changing direction. And that diagonal line of your arena, if you were to make a big giant long X in your arena, bumping it all the way up to an arcing turn around the short side, those would be the diagonal lines. And they're the longest lines of your arena. I like to practice the extended trot there because the horse comes to associate that place with giving full extension. Because of that, he'll know when I ask for a longer trot on the diagonal line that I really mean it. And so that's where we practice our really fully extended trot. And he comes to kind of associate that line with extension. So it helps him, you know, anticipate it a little bit more and work a little bit harder at the extension. 
also riding a slow collected trot to canter and back to a slow collected trot is an excellent training exercise, both for your canter departures and for your downward transition to the collected sitting trot. Many horses, when you transition them down from canter to trot, just go into a ground pounding, legs flailing mess of a trot that's really out of balance and hard to sit. That beautiful downward transition from a pretty collected canter straight into a slow collected trot, it takes a lot of practice to master that smooth downward transition. Same thing from canter to walk, by the way, is very difficult to do smoothly. We only master that with a lot of repetitions. Exercises that involve Repetitive transitions are always good. So in this case, we're talking about slow collected trot to canter to slow collected trot to canter. Remember, there's an old saying in horsemanship, you've probably heard me say it many, many times. It says that all of training occurs in transitions. Transitions occur anytime we ask for a change in speed of the horse, either between gates, say from walk to trot to walk or walk to canter to walk. Or within gates, from slow collected trot to working trot to extended trot back to slow trot. So all of training occurs in transitions. So the more transitions we do, the better balanced the horse becomes, the more synchronized the rider becomes with the horse, and the more you refine your communication with the horse. The reason why we say all of training occurs in transition is also because every time you ask something of the horse, and the horse complies and gives the right answer, positive training is occurring. Keep that in mind and do lots and lots of transitions at the trot. In my opinion, the most difficult transition of all transitions is from halt to trot. Now, this is strictly my opinion. I've never heard anyone else say that, but I've never heard anyone say what they thought the most difficult transition was. Halt to canter is not that hard. Halt to walk, obviously, is not hard. But for the horse to go to standing square and flat-footed on all four feet immediately into that two-beat trot with suspension is quite difficult, and it takes an extraordinary amount of communication and coordination between the horse and the rider. I think it's a challenging transition to practice. It is often required in ranch riding, which interestingly is a Western event. So it's something we we tend to practice a lot. It's challenging. Now, what you're going to have to do is is you you want an energized horse that you've just brought to a halt. You're going to kind of collect him up by putting legs on him and driving him forward with your seat at the same time you restrict him from moving forward with your hands. It's sort of like stepping on the gas pedal and the accelerator at the same time. And you'll feel the horse sort of well up in his forward energy at the same time that I sort of release the horse with my hands. I'm going to cluck once and then lift, kind of squeeze my buttocks together so that it lifts my seat like the motion of the trot. So so step on the gas pedal and the brakes. So you well your horse's energy up and then release him, cluck once and lift your seat in the trot motion. And he will learn to cue off your seat and step into the trot. He's not going to do it right away. This is going to take many, many, many sessions of practicing it before you get a clean halt to trot transition.
That was a lot of information about the trot. I hope you found some hints that might help you improve your equitation or maybe your horse's training. There's a lot that we talked about. And if you even only got one thing out of it that helps improve your riding, then uh, we'll call it a successful podcast. And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey Q&A. We pick a few unique questions from our listeners each month and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hey, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Our first question comes from Michelle, and this is in response to my recent podcast about conquering the canter. Michelle says, Hi, Julie. I just finished listening to your podcast on cantering, which I got a lot of great information from. Your podcast is timely since I've been working on the canter and getting the correct lead. I'm getting conflicting information from a trainer I respect very much who I'm learning from online using a video program and my horse trainer here at the barn. The trainer I follow through videos outlines getting the canter by setting up the horse by putting a bend in the horse. So going to the right, I would ask the horse to bend to the right. My trainer here at the barn tells me to turn the horse's head to the outside when getting the right lead. Perhaps I'm overthinking this, but what do you advise? Michelle, that's an excellent question. It's one that comes up a lot because there are two different ways to cue for the canter. One we call diagonal aids and one we call lateral aids. Your online trainer is talking about diagonal aids. So as we set the horse up to arc, we are using our outside leg to bring the horse haunches in and a slight upward and inward movement of the inside rein in order to tip the nose to the right and lift the horse's inside shoulder. And that's putting the horse in an arc. So we use the outside leg and the inside rein. That's diagonal aids. Remember, diagonal means opposite corners. Lateral aids then would be using the aids on the same side. When you set the horse up like your trainer at the barn is talking about, that's lateral aids. So he's using outside leg and outside rein and tipping the horse's nose to the outside. These are two very commonly used techniques to transition the horse to canter and to set him up for the correct lead. I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that the, the more proper way to do it is the way the online videos are telling you, to bend the horse properly, bring him haunches in, elevate his inside shoulder, tip his nose to the inside, which is the direction you're actually going in the turn as you cue the horse to canter. Sometimes we use the lateral aids or the outside rein in very green horses or horses that are struggling to take the correct lead. That might be a more mature horse. The only time I would use lateral aids myself is if I just simply couldn't get the horse onto the correct leads by any other means. The most important part, by the way, of setting the horse up for the correct lead is that he comes haunches in. In both of those methods, you're placing the horse haunches in. It's just in the first method, you're coming haunches in through a proper arc in the horse. And in the second method, the lateral aids, you're tipping the nose to the outside in order to make it easy to get the horse's haunches to the inside. 
So therefore, in my opinion, I use diagonal aids. They're the more proper aids and they're more consistent with everything you're going to do moving on through the levels with a horse because as he canters to the right, he should be bending to the right, not counterbending to the outside. The most important thing to keep in mind is that you need to bring the horse haunches in. Your outside leg does that. Whether you use the outside rein or the inside rein depends on the way the horse is trained. If I purchased a horse that was trained with lateral aids, I would first start riding him that way so that we came to an understanding of of what I was asking for and so that I had good success in my transitions and my canter departures. But I would ultimately work on developing a cue with diagonal aids so that he's more properly set up for the canter. Our next question comes from a new ride-on listener, Judy. And she says, I just discovered your podcast and I love it. I have recently transitioned from showing quarter horses in Western Pleasure and Horsemanship to ranch riding and I love it. I have two retired reining horses that I'm using for this new fun event. My question is, how do I take well-seasoned and successful reining horses and teach them not to carry their head in such a low artificial manner? Both horses will drop their nose all the way to the ground at whatever speed we are going whenever I apply leg. I've tried using two hands and the most absolute mild bit and lift my hands up trying to pick up the front end and they just get lower. Sometimes it works a little bit with some lateral work or turning into the fence, but the second we straighten out, bam, head goes back down. I can't be mad at them because they are just doing what they were trained to do and they are 100% committed to that training. Thought maybe you could address the subject of transitioning reining horses to ranch riding and the positives and negatives involved with that. Thank you so much. Oftentimes, reiners are trained to be in a little bit of an artificial frame, head down low, overcollected, doing uh, stylized maneuvers like really fast spins and big, long sliding stops. So there's a lot of style put into the maneuvers in reining. In ranch riding, the judges want to see a horse carry themselves in a balanced and natural frame. They don't like horses to be overcollected. They don't like an artificial headset. They want the horses to carry their head a little bit higher with an alert expression, sort of looking around, being ready to negotiate obstacles, tangled through brush or whatever. We also like the horses in ranch riding to move in more natural gaits. So we don't do those ultra slow sitting trot like Western Pleasure horses do. And idea being that if you're trotting on a ranch, it's because you want to go somewhere. Same thing with the canter. So we like the horses having more natural carriage, more natural speed. One really common technique for teaching horses to lower their heads amongst professional trainers in a variety of Western disciplines is to lift up on the reins while you apply spur with both feet. And then as soon as the horse lowers his head, you drop the reins and drop your feet. When you lift the reins up and apply spur, the horse lowers. And then when you release the reins and soften your legs, uh, hopefully he stays there. And so they use that as a cue to teach the horse to lower his head. Most trainers, when they want to teach horse to lower his head, will lift the reins and then wait for the horse to lower and release the pressure. That teaches the horse, when I lift, I want you to go down. 
it sounds a lot like your horse was trained that way. And what you're doing to try to train him not to lower his head is the same cue that was used to train him to lower his head. So that isn't going to work. You're probably never going to get there. And as you said, these horses are 100% committed to their training. What I would do is maybe think about mixing it up. Whatever cue they learn is what they know. And so we have to look for a different cue. I would think about a few things with your horses. One is start doing things with obstacles that require them to think about where they're putting their feet, whether that's trotting over poles and cavalettis or tarps or bridges or whatever. Do stuff up and down little hills, step ups and step downs, stuff that really requires them to deliberately lift their shoulders and do things with their feet and negotiate obstacles. This will teach them naturally to carry themselves differently. I think a lot of work out in a field, out on trails where you give the horses more freedom When I have horses that tend to go behind the bit, what I like to do is just drive them more forward, loosen the reins and drive them more forward. When you ask for speed, a horse will generally lift his shoulders. Just try to do different stuff, whether that's bending and lateral. But when you apply two legs and lift the reins, that's the cue the horse knows to lower his head. So you're going to have to find a different method of cueing. Now, one thing I can tell you that'll work beyond a shadow of a doubt is a horse will put his head wherever you want him to. If you apply pressure when the head is not in the right place and you release the pressure when the head is in the right place or moving towards the right place. In your case, you're asking the horse's head to come up. So every time my horse's head would go down, I would probably, now if I, if I could actually ride your horses, I would experiment with them and I might hit on something totally differently. But just sitting here, in my studio and thinking about it, I would probably, you know, put the horse up into a trot and with a loose rein and keep my legs off him. I don't mean hold your legs off him, but don't put legs into him. And as soon as his head goes down, I would increase the contact on the bit. If that makes him want to slow down, cluck him forward or spank him forward. Don't use your legs because that's going to make him go head down. And then just hold that steady contact on two reins until it starts irritating him and he starts looking for another answer. Probably the moment it starts irritating him, he's going to lift his head a little bit and kind of stiffen his neck. If the head comes up, release the contact, pat him on the neck. And when the head goes down, try that again. Your horse will carry its head in whatever position you ask it to if you simply apply pressure with the reins when the head is not where you want it and release the pressure as soon as he starts moving his head towards where you want it, either up or down. So that works for those of you that are thinking about lowering the head of the horse and also for Judy, who's trying to get her horse's heads up. I can't let this opportunity go by without saying to Judy, be careful what you wish for, because there's so many riders out there that are trying to get their horse's heads down. You're kind of asking for the opposite. And I know it's a frustrating problem to have, but it's just sort of a side effect from some really advanced training that your horses have. And I know you're grateful to have that as well. Hopefully one of those methods will work. Our final question comes from Ride On listener Susan Marie, and she says, In a recent podcast, you said you think quarter horses are not hot. I'm curious why you think that. I have a quarter horse. What is the difference between hot and cold horses, and how does our riding approach change with each, if it does? Thanks. 
Thanks for that great question, particularly the latter part, how that affects our writing, our, our approach to writing. But let me start with the background on the terminology hot-blooded and cold-blooded. The definition of a hot-blooded horse is this. It is a horse that is highly sensitive to environmental stimuli. That's all stimuli. Sounds, touch, movement, barometric pressure, weather changes, sounds. They're sensitive to all pressure. A cold-blooded horse is a horse that's highly insensitive to environmental pressure. It just refers to the temperament or the excitability or the sensitivity level of the horse. And so if I'm riding a super hot-blooded horse, if I just think go, he goes. He's alert. He's got a lot of forward energy. If I just slightly put my leg onto him, he responds. If I slightly shift my weight, he responds. Highly sensitive horses do not make good beginner horses. So if I'm riding a cold-blooded horse, I got to use a lot more leg. You know, nothing startles him. He's not sensitive to pressure. The same amount of pressure I would use to stop him or make him go is a lot more than uh, what I might have to use on that hot-blooded horse. The sensitivity level is just much lower, whether I'm touching him, whether it's how he responds to a stimulus like sound or sudden movement or a windy day or changes in weather. We also refer to types of horses as that particular breed is a hot-blooded type of horse. So for instance, our thoroughbreds, Arabians, saddlebreds, Morgans, many of the European breeds, these are all widely regarded as hot-blooded horses because they tend to be highly sensitive. And our calmer, more cold-blooded breeds are the likes of uh, draft horses are the most kind of classic cold-blooded breed. But quarter horses tend to be calm and mellow, and so we often think of them as a cold-blooded breed. And that is just a gross generality. The truth is that within any breed of horses, you might have hotter or colder individuals, even thoroughbreds and Arabians. One might be super, super sensitive, skittish, nervous. Another one, even though he's a purebred Arabian or thoroughbred, he might be totally calm, mellow, lazy, insensitive to stimuli. Same thing is true of draft horses. Some of the draft horses, even though they're big, gentle giants, are quite sensitive. Others are tend to be insensitive. We talk about breeds of horses in generalities as either being hot-blooded or cold-blooded, but that does not account for the individuals within the breed. Now, one more thing I'll add to this discussion is the complication of the quarter horse breed. Thoroughbreds, in general, we can consider hot-blooded, and quarter horses in general, we stock horses in general, we can consider cold-blooded. However, for many, many generations, quarter horses have been crossed with thoroughbreds. And that's what we refer to as appendix registered horses. If I take my foundation bred stock horse, quarter horse mare, and I breed her to a thoroughbred stallion, the offspring is half thoroughbred, half quarter horse, but it can be registered as an appendix quarter horse, meaning that it's not considered a purebred, but it's in the appendix registry. However, that horse can earn his way into purebred status 
by gaining enough performance points. And so let's say he was a racehorse and he won a bunch of quarter horse races. He might achieve enough status to then come out of the appendix registry into the purebred registry. And now that horse that was half quarter horse, half thoroughbred is considered a quarter horse. Through the years and through the generations, the thoroughbred blood has been pretty intricately woven into the quarter horse breed. The horses that we refer to as true foundation bred quarter horses, all that means is they don't have any thoroughbred blood in them. Because of all the mixing with thoroughbreds, we actually have some quite hot-blooded quarter horses. There's been so much mixing of those types of horses. Like I said, within any breed, You could have hot-blooded or cold-blooded individuals, but when we refer to the breed in general, we might refer to it as a cold-blooded breed as we think of stock horses being. So I hope that clarifies that discussion. It's a good question. And then how does that approach your training? I would have to say it affects it a lot because a really hot-blooded horse, I grew up with hot-blooded horses. I get along really well with hot-blooded horses. But you have to be able to come down to the level of sensitivity of the horse. For instance, if you compare training purebred Arabians with a foundation-bred quarter horse, they are much different animals. That Arabian is so, so sensitive and skittish and forward-moving. And the stock horse might be quite the opposite of that, getting the horse's focus, bringing your cues down to his level of sensitivity. I often joke about working on an Arabian and a round pin is is so different from a quarter horse because you can just cue him with your eyeballs. If you look at him, he goes faster. If you look away, he goes slower. That's how sensitive they are. So I have to be able to bring my methods and my cueing down to the horse's level of sensitivity or I will overwhelm him. One of my favorite things to keep in mind is something my friend Mark Rashid often says when talking about dealing with emotional horses. He said, imagine emotionality on a scale of one to 10. And one is like dead calm and 10 is full on meltdown. If your horse is at a nine, you better be at a one. But if your horse is at a two, you might need to be at an eight. That's a really good example of how we don't necessarily change our progression of training or the techniques that we use. It's more adjusting to the horse's sensitivity level and bringing it way down that's going to help you be successful with the hotter-blooded horses. If you haven't read Mark Rashid's books, and he is a prolific author, has written many books about horsemanship, I highly encourage you to look him up. His last name is Rashid, R-A-S-H-I-D. He's written many excellent books on horse training from a more philosophical point of view, and I think you'll really enjoy really, really excellent reading. He even recently came out with a novel that has to do with horses, too, that's also an excellent read. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Ride On with Julie Goodnight. No matter where you are in your horsemanship journey, whether you're new to horses or an old hand, whether you're training a green horse or refining your higher level skills, I hope you found some helpful information to make your horse life better. Next month on my podcast, I'll tackle another horse training topic that you've been asking for. So please join me. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. 
I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most, so if you have questions for What the Hay or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. It helps me out a lot, and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers like you and me find this podcast. Don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. You can subscribe to my full training library, enroll in a horsemanship short course, or join at the premier level, the Interactive Academy, where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Just go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and start your ride. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe and enjoy the ride. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride.